Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, Eric, it's a boring sporting weekend for me because there's no Premier League action, but uh, Monday night sees a rematch between the Kansas City Chiefs and your Philadelphia Eagles, and I can only assume that 10 months after the Super Bowl, you've gotten all the unhinged rants about one particular call out of your system. You've come to a reasonable, objective conclusion that the Chiefs were the better team that day and uh, might as well just prove who's the better team now through a good old-fashioned Monday night football game and there's just nothing to be ranty about anymore. So I'm glad you've got it out of your system and you can just enjoy the football, am I right? Yeah, yeah. Well said, uh, of course. Uh, you know, en- enough time has passed. It would be kind of pathetic with everything going on in the world, with all my real-life duties to deal with day in and day out, if I was still obsessing over a referee calling a penalty in the waiting moments of the Super Bowl, a penalty of the ilk the officials had been ignoring all game up to that point. It would be ridiculous for me not to be over that. Um, I'm an Eagles fan, of course, but, you know, why should I still be thinking about it if, say... Roger Goodell, the world's biggest Chiefs fan, isn't thinking about it. I mean, that would be weird, right? So, no, I'm I'm good. It happens. Sometimes an entire season of a sport comes down to one arbitrary decision. What kind of man would I be if I wasn't over it by now? I'm good. I'm I'm looking forward to Monday night. There's a lot at stake. I mean, we could be looking at a Super Bowl 58 preview. And whoever wins is retroactively the Super Bowl 57 champion, too, since that game never ended. I'm excited. I'm good. I'm I'm in a good place, a good mental state. Jason Kelsey is the best Kelsey and everyone knows it. And Taylor Swift wishes he wasn't married so she could have dated him. I'm fine. I'm fine. Let's move on. Okay. That's good. I'm really happy to hear that. I'm really happy to hear that you're, you're healthy, that you're in a good place, that you've moved on, that you're being mature about the whole thing, Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. twiddling on it at all. Nope. Um, Not at all. Really being an atypical sports fan, if I may (laughs) say in many respects. And, uh, you know, I've always admired that, that objectivity that you've, always been able to display particularly when it comes to philadelphia sports teams i'm i'm proud of you eric and, and i'm really i'm really happy to hear that about you thank you yes no i i'm i'm i'm, I'm a very level-headed non-emotional person when it comes to such things and uh, you know as long as we're uh, we're on the subject i'm also um totally over mitch williams giving up a home run to joe carter in 1993 totally over that also <laughs> Excellent. Boy, it's just been it's been a productive year for you. I can tell you've been working <laughs> on yourself and, and that's great. I'm, I'm glad. Yes. Sportsman, the great healer. Nothing brings us all together mm. and really works to break down those tribal barriers quite like sports. Mm. That sounds like a, a setup to transition into talking about another sport. <laughs> let's talk about another sport. Yes, let's. actually. Another sport that also has people ranting and raving constantly and that's just this podcast <laughs> um we will look ahead uh in this podcast to the rematch between katie taylor and Chantel cameron we'll look back on shakur stevenson's historic for all the wrong reasons win against edwin de los santos on thursday night um we'll pick through the news eric will hit me with a fight game challenge and he'll reveal his list of the top five wins by showtime boxing analysts but foist for the very last time boxing returns to showtime pay-per-view on Saturday, in a four-fight card from the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas, headlined by David Benavides, taking on Demetrius Andre. You say for the very last time, but if this sells two million pay-per-views, Paramount reconsiders killing Showtime boxing, right? Uh, oh, yeah, that... they probably give us a boost, too, financially. Right. 
Exactly. So, uh, yeah, but okay, let's let's proceed as if this is the last Showtime pay-per-view. The four-fight telecast begins at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and it opens with a 130-pound battle between Hector Garcia, who is 16-1 with 10 KOs, plus a rather unusual three no contests on his record, defending an alphabet belt in a scheduled 12-rounder against Lamont Roach, who is 23-1-1 with nine KOs. Uh, Kieran, give us some background. Remind us who these guys are. What do we need to know about these two fighters, one of whom is making his Showtime debut and the other of whom recently was in the main event on a Showtime pay-per-view? Lamont Roach is the one making the Showtime debut. He's 28 years old now, and it feels like he's been on the verge of breaking out for quite a few years without actually doing so. Uh, he's challenged for a belt once. He lost a decision to Jamil Herring in 2019, uh, which came after wins against the likes of Angel Mercado and Jonathan Okendo. But since then, he's stagnated, as is the want with boxes these days. He's turned out just four times in the last four years, going 4-0 with two KOs, but against really quite middling opposition. And he's going to be making a step up against Garcia, whom listeners will probably recall giving Javante Davis a a pretty tough fight uh, at the beginning of the year before being stopped between rounds eight and nine. Um, He may also register in the memory for his outing before that when he took Chris Colbert to the woodshed over the distance in a very impressive performance. Uh, he moved up to 135 pounds for the challenge of Davis, but he's dropping back to his natural 130 pounds for this contest. Eric, when we announced the undercard fights a few weeks ago, you mentioned Roach Garcia as being one you were very much looking forward to. What do you find appealing about it? And uh, what's your pick? Well, I find it appealing on two fronts. It's a competitive fight on paper. Uh, Even though there is a clear betting favorite, it's not a case of an overwhelming favorite. Uh, And the other front is I I just enjoy watching Hector Garcia. He's smooth. He's slick. He fights skillfully, but he isn't boring. You know you're in good hands with Garcia opening a show. He's probably not going to steal the show and give you the fight of the year or anything, but uh, I just like watching him fight. Like I said, you're in good hands, um, assuming no head clash induced, no contest, of course. Uh, Southpaw versus Orthodox, that is a concern. Anyway, I I like this fight, and I especially like it as a we're going to find out if Lamont Roach has it kind of fight. Uh, His second try at an alphabet belt, as you said, the first went poorly. His dad says he was just young and inexperienced and learned from losing to Herring. Well, let's see. This second chance could be his last chance, and it won't be easy. But it is winnable. Um, so, so that leads to my pick. Um, and I'll just note the scores in our competition now. I think we had it earmarked for lower down in the rundown, but may as well mention it now. So we both know exactly what the situation is as we make these picks. I'm leading 73-69. This is the second to last card of the year. So uh, do or don't show desperation as needed, Kieran. Um, I will not show desperation. I'm making the chalk pick here. Hector Garcia by unanimous decision. Look, he may just be the best fighter at 130. Um, it's up for grabs, you know, after Net- Navarrete's struggle the other day that we'll be talking about later on the pod. Oshaki Foster, very good, but certainly not dominant. Joe Cordina. I mean, Garcia fits right in with those guys. Could be the best. Needs a clear-cut win here to retain any such claim, and I think he'll get it. Roach figures to be more aggressive than he was against Herring, at least, but, you know, that may play into the hands of a sharp counterpunching Southpaw like Garcia. I'm thinking it's one of those fights where Roach is competitive all the way, but not winning very many rounds. Scores in the 118, 110, 117, 111 kind of range. Hector Garcia, unanimous decision, three points for me. Up to you, Kieran, whether you want the same three points or you want to lose (laughs) ground by making an incorrect, desperate pick. 
<laughs> you know, you said that you thought this one of the attractions of this fight is we would see whether Lamont Roach has it. And we will. Mm. And I suspect that we'll find he doesn't quite at this level. I think we would have found out by now, or we would have had more of an inkling. There's been a lot of talk of promise about Roach, and it's never quite revealed itself. Um, I agree with you. Look, he's not a bad fighter at all. In fact, he's a pretty good one. But Garcia's really pretty decent here. And I think that Roach, I think he's going to be a little bit more competitive than you have it. Uh, I actually jotted down what I thought the scores would be. And I'm thinking more like a 16-12 kind of thing. Because I think okay. especially at, at times, though, he's he's slick. He, he definitely has some skills. I think he's got the ability to sneak a few rounds. But I think he's going to sneak fewer and fewer of them uh, as the fight goes on. I just think Garcia's got the speed, he's got the skills, he's got the relentlessness, he's absolutely got the engine. He's just got more of everything, really, I think, Hector Garcia. And he might have some troubles with him early on as he tries to figure him out. But I've got him, as I mentioned, uh, winding up a kind of 116-112 across the board. I'm not going to make up any ground here because I agree with you. I have Garcia by unanimous decision. All right. Uh, following that contest, we move up 10 pounds to Junior Welter and a showdown between two men who've beaten every opponent they faced. Uh, Titleist and knockout artist Subriel Matias, who avenged his one professional defeat, takes on unbeaten Shojahan Urgashev. Eric, same question to you as you asked me. For those who don't remember them or haven't seen them before, who are these guys and what do they bring to the table? Well, they both bring power to the table, for starters. Uh, Ergashev is 23-0 with 20 of his 23 wins coming by knockout, including 12 in the first round. And Matias, he's 19-1. All 19 wins are by KO, making him one of only four fighters in the ring ratings right now to never have won via decision, only knockouts. Uh, the others, for you trivia buffs out there, are Archer Betterbiev, Virgil Ortiz, and friend of the pot, Gary Antoine Russell. Um other key things to know, Matias has faced better opposition uh, among his last four opponents were a 30-0 and fighter and two 18-0 fighters. He's proven himself to be an all-action fighter. Uh, he lost to Petros Ananian by close decision on the Fury Wilder 2 undercard back in 2020, but as you said, uh, avenged that loss. He also has a tragic win on his record over Maxim Dadashev in 2019. Matias is from Puerto Rico, and he's been off for nine months. He was supposed to fight Sergei Lipinets in August, but it didn't happen. Ergashev from Uzbekistan has been off even longer, a career longest 15 months. He's a southpaw. He's trained by Sugar Hill Stewart. He fought on Showbox four times. And his nickname, as we've discussed before his previous Showtime fights, is Descendant of Tamerlane, which uh, I think is a supremely lame nickname. I can't recall for sure, but I think you might have said you liked it, although that was a couple of years ago. But uh, anyway, that's everything you need to know about these two boxers. Uh, so I now will ask you about this fight. The question you asked me about Garcia Roach, uh, you were particularly excited about this matchup when we discussed it on a previous pod. Tell me why. Tell me what you're expecting here. And what's your pick? You've basically already said why well, I'm excited about it. 20 KOs and 23 wins versus 19 KOs and 19 wins. Yeah. I mean, that basically sums it up right there. Um, these are both good boxers who are really fighters. Um, in terms of the offense-defense balance, they definitely swing very high to the offense side of the ledger. In fact, honestly, at times you watch Urgashev, and it's almost as if there's barely any defense at all. Um, Urgashev really relies on his wide stance, and his upper body movement to sort of keep him from being hit. 
he has his hands down by his side by his waist constantly yeah. uh, and while his offense is certainly effective he's also there to be countered he lunges with his power left hand pretty often and so i think this may very well be where the undefeated record ends for Urgashev. he's normally a fast starter but i won't be surprised at all if these two show each other a lot of respect early once someone gets hit though all bets were off, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see after perhaps a surprisingly quiet opening couple of rounds, things really kick off fast. I wouldn't be as surprised at all to see both of them tur- taking turns to land really heavy leather. But I think Matthias is the tougher one. I think he's the better all round. As you mentioned, he has the better quality of opposition. I think he's probably got the better punch and the better defense. I think. It'll start slow, go straight up to 100 uh, uh, in about round three. I think it's most likely that at some point during some exchange, Matias is the one who lands and puts Orgashev out for the count. And I'm going to say Matias KO in seven. Okay. Um, I'm a Matias guy. Um, you know, he has his flaws, um, especially defensively, although, as you said, probably the better of the two defensive fighters in this one. But I don't care what flaws he has. I'm all in. Uh, I, I think it's going to take an elite fighter to hand him his next defeat. And Arkashev could well be that guy. But between the layoff and possible ring rust and just the fact that he hasn't faced a test even close to Matias yet, I can't pick Arkashev here. Um, and I guess the trends and numbers do point to a knockout like you predicted, uh, although I wouldn't be at all surprised if they're evenly matched enough and tough enough that that neither one does manage to stop the other. But I'll still lean toward the numbers and trends and say not only does Matias win, but he hurts Argashev and gets the stoppage in round 10. So not the same as you, giving it a few extra rounds so you have a chance if you nail the round to make up some points here. Um, But I'll also note that if I should end up betting this fight, I'm betting Argashev. He's like a plus 310 dog. I think he's definitely more live to win than that. Uh, let's move on to the co-main on this pay-per-view card, which is contracted for 163 pounds and features middleweight titleist Jamal Charlo making his first appearance since June 2021. He's taking on Jose Benavides Jr., who challenged Terrence Crawford for a welterweight title back in 2018 and has fought just three times since. Kieran, give us the story here. Remind us why these two have been such rare sights in the ring lately. So Benavides has had all kinds of issues that have prevented him from reaching the heights that so many thought he would reach. As an amateur, he worked with Freddie Roach and he sparred Manny Pacquiao. And Freddie would absolutely rave about him. Whether he was asked about him or not, he would say, you've got to see this kid who's working in my gym. And he started off his career 25-0. and 0, But then in, 20, in August 2016, he was shot in the leg. And he's only won three times since then. Uh, he came back to the ring. Won twice, lost to Crawford, uh, and then he sat out for 37 months for a whole bunch of reasons. To get his head together, to become a father, spend time with his family, uh, allow his leg to heal some more. Um, After those 37 months, he had to lose 80 pounds when it was time for him to get back in the ring. And he was probably fortunate to get a draw against Emmanuel Torres on Showtime. Since then, he's been on the more typical fight once a year schedule for a boxer in 2023 losing a majority decision to Danny Garcia in July 2022, and getting his first win in five years against a 36-15 and 15 opponent just three months ago. As for Charlo, nobody who 
is outside the inner circle knows exactly why Charlo hasn't been seen in a ring for two years. He wouldn't tell you and I directly when we talked to him in Las Vegas a couple of months ago, but it's pretty clear there's been some kind of mental health issue going on. Um, for those who don't recall, it was assumed when the idea of a fight between Charlo and Canelo Alvarez was, was mooted and appeared close to being made, that the Charlo in question would be Jamal. But when it soon became clear that he was not going to be able to be ready, mentally or physically, Brother Jamel stepped in. So there are a lot of unknowns about Charlo as he enters this contest. And although he'll likely as a favorite here, he is the natural middleweight after all. And even with two years out of the ring, he's actually been more active over the last five years than Benavidez. Two years out of the ring is a long time. So how realistic are Benavidez's chances, Eric, given that? And what's your pick? Um, first, I just got to say uh, that uh, if you need further proof that the alphabet groups are the arbiters of nothing for those <laughs> with functioning brains, check out the utter randomness uh, and or capitalist profit mindedness behind <laughs> who they do and don't strip of titles. Look, I'm anti stripping um, of titles. That is, uh, you know, removal of clothes. That's a personal decision. But uh, but titles should be won or lost in the ring. But if you're going to strip fighters, what is the possible explanation for not stripping Charlo after more than two and a half years without defending his belt? Um, So just want to shine a spotlight on the utter absurdity of anyone caring who doesn't doesn't have any of these trinkets. Um, But my pick on the fight, uh, Benavidez chances, all that. This is by far the easiest fight to pick on this card for me. I just don't think a whole lot of Benavidez. He ain't no David Benavidez, that's for sure. He hasn't looked like a championship-level fighter to me since returning to the ring in 2021. Jamal would have to have gotten fully washed during his layoff to lose this fight, in my opinion. I assume, despite Jamal's layoff, that the difference in ability will show here to the point of him stopping Benavidez. I'm going to say KO6. It gets you know pretty one-sided and not sure if i'm thinking ref intervention corner intervention or or just a clean ko but one way or the other i've got ko6 here how about you yeah uh, for me the the one issue the question mark still is what's been going on with jamal charlo and how is he now and what does he bring to the table now and that's just so uncertain they've they've mm-hmm. really kept the lid on all of that um Folks that I've spoken to who have, you know, been talking to him uh, in the build-up to the fight, try to interview him. Sort of said, uh, I, I one colleague interviewed him uh, in Las Vegas prior to the uh, Shakur Stevenson fight. Uh, he was around for that, and they said he seemed distracted and off and surly. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It could mean that he's just distracted and surly. Uh, it could mean that he's just getting focused on the fight it's tough to say i'm gonna go ahead and assume that he's okay relatively speaking anyway um and then if that's the case it's a question of how quickly can he regain his muscle memory and his timing if he can do that he'll be more than enough like you said for benavidez look since coming back from that long layoff after crawford in particular he just has not looked good that said i think early on if charlo's trying to kind of get into a bit of a groove, get everything back on track. Benavidez lately has, has adopted quite a bit of a, a, a mauling, brawling kind of a style. And it could just be really awkward for Charlie to get going uh, initially. He might just have some trouble 
getting into his groove. And so because I think it might actually take him a little while to get into that groove, I think that Benavidez might last the distance here. I'm going to assume that Charlo's, if not great, then good enough to be an approximation of Jamal Charlo here and that his biggest issues are going to be working out kinks. If that is the case, I'm picking him to win. But I think it'll be one of those kind of, oh, well, at least I got that out of my system. Now I can kind of get going kind of a fight for him. And I'm going to end up picking him by fairly wide uh, unanimous decision, ultimately. Okay. And that brings us to the main event. Uh, Jose's brother, David Benavides, putting his unbeaten record on the line against fellow undefeated Demetrius Andrade in a super middleweight contest. And by the way, our buddy Raul Marquez is quite right. I saw a video in which he was self-identifying as Demetrius Andrade just the other mm-hmm. day. <laughs> Who the hell no? <laughs> um, Benavides is 27-0 and with 23 KOs. Uh, he's fought at this weight, or even occasionally a light heavyweight for his entire career. Andrade is 32-0 and with, perhaps surprisingly, 19 KOs and has campaigned at junior middleweight and middleweight before moving up to 168 here. I just mentioned Andrade's KO record. We don't think of him at all as a KO puncher, and generally speaking, he isn't. But one interesting thing is that 13 of those 19 KOs he scored in his career have been in the first two rounds. He tends to start lightning fast, but generally, if he doesn't get you out of there early, you're likely to go the distance with him. Uh, conversely, while Benavidez does knock out the majority of his opponents, he isn't a concussive puncher per se. He's somebody who tends to start slowly, build up ahead of steam, break his opponents down, and stop them late. So, is the fact that Andre is a fast starter and Benavidez is a slow one, is that enough to provide the Rhode Islander with his best chance of success, do you think, Eric? Hmm... I'd say it provides him with his second best chance of winning this fight. Uh, his best chance, I think, is to to outbox Benavidez, to just prove too slick and too skillful and, and, and give one of those performances that leaves everyone like, how did we not see that coming? Andrade's a super talented boxer and, and he's a nightmare style for Benavidez. We, we should have known he was going to box circles around him. I think it's considerably more likely that Andrade wins a decision by outboxing Benavidez than it is that he catches him early and takes him out. Although that is possible for the reasons you state. But like all those KO1s and KO2s, they were all very early in his career against very mediocre opposition with one exception, Jason Quigley. Other than the Quigley fight, Andrade has gotten to at least the ninth round in the other nine of his last 10 fights. So I think his KO percentage is actually pretty accurate you know he he stopped guys regularly when he was a prospect facing poor opposition but once he started fighting semi-credible opposition he mostly stopped getting ko's um all that said you know at least an early flash knockdown due to his speed and due to benavidez's slow starting yeah that that seems perfectly plausible um but uh i should just add you know i noted it's possible andrade style will prove a nightmare for benavidez well Benavidez's style has proven a nightmare for most of his opponents. So so that could also be the case here. This is one of those fights where I could see it playing out a few different ways. And whichever way it does play out, we'll, we'll say a few rounds in. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, of course. Um, yeah. 
I, I find it an intriguing matchup. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't a dream fight I spent years begging for, certainly. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've talked a lot about some of the super middleweight fights we'd like to see, particularly the ones we'd like to see involving David Benavidez. And I don't think Demetrius Andrade's name ever came up. So I'll ask you, Kieran, is there enough uncertainty in this for you to find it interesting and intriguing like I do? Or are you in the camp of wake me up when Benavidez fights Canelo or Morel? So uh, there are sort of two elements to, to my answer, I think. One is, who would I most like to see Benavidez fight? And, and sort of related to that is how much do I ever really want to watch Andrade fight? Uh, mm. He can be such a frustrating guy to watch, Andrade. Entertaining and so skillful in spots. But then so often just playing the same old notes round after round after round. Yes, I would much prefer to see Benavidez against Canelo or or Morel. Uh, I think Benavides might actually beat Canelo now. I honestly don't know what would happen with Morel. But we can't always get what we want. And I would rather see Benavides against somebody than nobody. And right. as you've talked about, the fact that it is Andre does bring intrigue to this. This is very much a clash of styles. And I am genuinely curious about which one can overwhelm the other. Against that, however, and you touched on this, as one digs into this, the question arises of how much Andre Andre's career is really kind of a shimmer up. He can, with some justification, make the case that he's been repeatedly avoided. But the fact is, despite having a professional record of 32 and 0, despite being 35 years old, despite having been a pro for 15 years, is there really any one fight that you can look at and go, yeah, that was a good win? Or Wow, that was a major scalp. Has there been any fight that he's entered as an underdog and come away with a win? Um, additionally, and here's the other interesting one, at 35 years old and now at 168 pounds, does he still have the same legs mm. to carry him to victory the same way that those legs have helped carry him to victory in, in so many fights? There's no question, I think, that what happens is that, that Andre starts fast here. Um, I don't see what option he has. Benavides can be hit, and he can seem a bit statuesque until he gets going. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see lots of, hear lots of oohs and ahs from commentary team and, and the crowd, and Andre moving out to a 30 to 27 lead, and there being lots of, oh my God, is an upset brewing on social media. After six rounds, Benavides will be stirring. He'll still be behind on the cards. Will he have enough time to overhaul him? Yeah, he will. Uh, he'll wake up. He'll get into his rhythm. He'll bang Andre to the body. He'll slow him down. He'll beat him up. And he'll overhaul him on the scorecards. He may very well drop him once or even twice, possibly from body shots. And I think by the end, in fairly typical David Benavidez fashion, he'll be battering him. Uh, and, and Andre will be retreating to the ropes and, and doing his best to try to get out of the way. There'll be talk about whether the corner should stop it or the referee should stop it. But I think Andre will just about make it to the end. And after starting 30 to 27, he'll end up losing by something like 116, 110, including a knockdown or two across the board. Benavides by wide unanimous decision for me. I have been struggling with this one a lot more than it sounds like you have been. I, I've been a flipping and a flopping on this one for the last <laughs> few weeks. Um, is it just like, you know... Benavidez is a monster. 
Andrade's been a pro for 15 years and fought nobody and let his prime waste away and, and took no fights that prepared him for this. And so here he is overwhelmed and beaten down by Benavidez. Uh, or is it, well, you know, nobody at the elite level wanted to fight this guy and we just saw why, because he's all risk, no reward. He's a Hall of Fame talent without a Hall of Fame resume. Um, and then there's there's something in between, of course, something like, Canelo versus Austin Trout, where it's a it's a close, mm. tough, tricky fight, but the judges don't have a hard time picking a winner. Um, I think it's reasonable to expect that in close rounds, Andrade, with his style, will not get the benefit of the doubt, and, and the crowd will be roaring for Benavidez. Andrade's going to have to really take him to school to get the W, you would think. Um, now, sort of like uh, what I said about Matias Sergachev, this is a fight where I think the price is better on the underdog if I'm going to bet it. Whether I'm picking the underdog or not, I'm not. Um, but but I'm really tempted to. Um, I think it's like a 55-45 fight. But when in doubt, go with the guy who's been more active, who's battle-tested, and whose style the judges are likely to prefer. I'm picking Benavidez like you did. I'm picking him by decision like you did, but I'm picking him by controversial split decision. Mm, okay, very good. Interesting. So, so one way or the other, there'll be some kind of a uh, movement. One would think our, so. Uh, in a little contest. So yes, three out, of, three out of four fights, we don't have the exact same pick. So, yeah. All right. Which, which uh, by our standards, is wildly disagreeing. Indeed, indeed. We are we are really at loggerheads on this card. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, so picking a winner there was it was a challenge for me. Uh, now it's a time for a challenge for you, Kieran. Let's play the fight game. Uh, this one was submitted by Jamie Rebner, who uh, you may recall uh, meeting at the Hall of Fame in 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, he submitted this. I made some edits. I, I, I thought his original clues made it maybe around 90 percent likely that you'd get it by the second clue. And, and my oh, I goal liked is, his version. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you would have. But my goal is usually to make it harder than that. So so I extracted some details here and there, moved some things around. Maybe you'll still get it in one or two, but I've rigged it so that three is the more likely outcome. But uh, anyway, here we go. Clue one. This catchweight bout featured one future Hall of Famer and one undefeated fighter who was not Hall of Fame bound. You really should get it uh, off um, that. I, I basically told you everything you need to know. Was a catchweight, or was that? Holy mother of God! You've done yes! it, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> well, the listeners have just heard some some beep outs because Kieran guessed it in one, <laughs> and uh, we don't want to spoil the uh, the fun of playing along for you guys. But uh, wow, that was impressive. I tried to make it harder, and it didn't matter. <laughs> Wow. Uh, wow. I am. I am impressed. That was great. That was uh, that was that was your best pull in a long time, if not uh, if not ever. Uh, so. All right. Let me let me read the rest of the clues as okay. I've as I've uh, edited them to make them harder. Uh, and uh, and then uh, and then and then we'll double back and, and discuss uh, this incredible uh, guess in one that you've just managed. So clue two was both fighters were ranked in the ring top 10 pound for pound at the time. One of them had been on that list fairly consistently for nearly a decade. The other had just entered it a year earlier. Clue three, and this is where I thought you would probably get it. 
voted the ring upset of the year. The Hall of Famer won by a landslide decision. Steve Weisfeld, 118-108. Alan Rubenstein, 119-106. Barbara Perez, 117-109. Handing the undefeated fighter his first loss and sending him back down from this catchweight to the division in which he was champion. Feel like there was a lot in there that that if you hadn't gotten it in one, you probably would have gotten it there. Um, Clue four: the winner had eleven more fights after this. The loser just seven. And it's surprising the winner had more fights after this since he was the older of the two fighters by more than a decade. And last clue: although he had the pale complexion of a ghost, the reigning middleweight champion was not hard to find, <laughs> and he was cleanly executed by a Philly fighter who was 17 years his senior. <laughs> so I assume everyone has gotten it by now uh, that uh, what Kieran said uh, in response to the first clue was Bernard Hopkins, W12, Kelly Pavlik at Boardwalk, Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City, New Jersey, October 18th, 2008. So now we can uh, further discuss what uh, what what just the word catchweight and Hall of Famer got you thinking about Bernard, huh? I think it was just that, yeah. But, you know, it was one of those things where we joke, well, we joke, we, we comment quite often about how it's very easy to get stuck on a fight mm. or a weight class or an era or something very early on and then not get lodged from that. Sometimes if you just like the, the clues are right and you're like, it's that fight, you're great. Otherwise, you can just <laughs> right. end off down completely the wrong path. I don't know, listening to those clues, had it not just occurred to me when you said it, I don't know that I would have gotten it from those clues. There was just that first clue, just it just clicked. Right. But those are good clues. Yeah. Like good in the sense that they were gettable, but not. I. I might have struggled with a couple of them, actually. I'm not mm. sure that I would have gotten it on, on Clue 3. I just happened to alight on it. And the thing that I remember about this fight is that I, it was one of my worst calls because I picked Pavlik to win. And yeah, most, almost everyone did. Yeah, and it was, boy, and I'm trying to remember. My memory now tells me that close to the event, I kind of switched my, mm. my pick. But that just might be my memory trying to make me feel better about it. Were I you were you I, at this fight? I can't remember if you no, were there. You know what? I was scheduled okay. to be, but my father died just a few weeks ah, beforehand. Okay. And, and so I didn't, but I think I was scheduled to be. Ah, okay. Um, and I'm not sure as a consequence whether I've actually seen the fight ever now that we talk about oh, it. Oh, wow. That would be... Because uh... obviously I had other things on my mind at the time. Right, right. Yeah, I just don't know if I've ever hmm. actually seen it from beginning to end now that huh. we talk about it, actually. Okay. Well, I, I was at this one, and, and I can tell you that the talk at ringside during the undercard leading up to it was still mostly a lot of, boy, I'm really concerned for Bernard. I think this mm. is the fight where he's going to take a beating. I think that Father Time catches up with him here. And the, so if you had started to switch to Bernard, you were in the minority. Most people mm. were indeed picking Pavlik and and concerned that maybe he would just uh, totally dominate Bernard in this fight. Um, mm. th so the thing that I mostly took out of the clues, or at least out of, I think somewhere in clue two, there was a reference to a big age gap and i felt like that was going to make it too obvious that was the main uh, thing that i moved down into into clue four but i also kind of figured clue three with all the details of upset of the year who the judges were and their scores and so you're hearing steve weisfeld you're getting a sense of the era at least so even if oh and and then the key detail in there i thought sending him back down from the catch weight to the uh, division in which he was champion i kind of feel like there were enough clues in there that that you would have gotten it but it didn't matter because you got it in one damn you 
you know what it might have thrown me off a little bit because i didn't realize that i didn't recall that as many people thought that bernard was such an underdog as they did yeah. that it was the upset of the year that might have even thrown me off a little bit if i hadn't gotten it so mm. um yeah jamie's sitting at home thinking i told you you should have stayed with my clues <laughs> I guess I, I don't think I changed the first clue too okay. much. Uh, I def, I tweaked it a little bit, but I, I, I definitely had catchweight bout and future Hall of Famer and undefeated fighter and all that. So <laughs> I, I, I think if you got it in one from my clues, you would have gotten in one from Jamie's as well. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Jamie. Thank you for sending that in. We appreciate yes. that. So, yes. Sorry. Uh, sorry. I was the skunk at the party. As it were. <laughs> well, we still got to read all the clues and we put Here in the beep and all that. So uh, it works out. Yes. Thank you for making my job easier, Jamie. I didn't have to think of a fight this week. Um, all right, let's uh, move on. Let's recap some fights. Although a quick note first that uh, we are recording the whole podcast this week on Saturday, not our usual Sunday. I have an all-day conflict Sunday. Um, I have to fly to Kansas City to pay off the refs just to call the game fairly <laughs> on Monday night. Uh, no, no, I have an all-day family outing Sunday. Uh, or by the time you listen to this, I had an all-day family outing Sunday. So anyway, I mentioned this because there are some Saturday fights None of them are major, but if something major goes down, you won't hear us mention it on this podcast. We can double back to it next week, I suppose, if necessary. Thankfully, the biggest fights this week were on Thursday, which is uh, quite conducive to a Saturday recording. We've been mildly complaining over the last couple of weeks about the lack of big fights, but this was a good one on Thursday, at least on paper. Uh, in the ring, it was a colossal dud. Shakur Stevenson won an alphabet belt at lightweight by outpointing Edwin De Los Santos over 12 rounds in front of a sparse. And as the fight went along, increasingly sparse as people actually headed for the exits, a sparse and unimpressed crowd at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. The scores were 115-113 and 116-112 twice. But the CompuBox stats really tell the story. In victory, Stevenson landed a grand total of 63 punches in defeat, De Los Santos landed just 40, the lowest total ever recorded over a 12-round fight. Kieran, what happened here? Well, why was this fight so bad? And and how badly does this damage the Shakur hype train? It was shockingly awful. Um, so awful. I'd prefer not to spend very much time on it, but the fact that it was Shakur Stevenson means we should talk about it. Yeah. Um, Tim Bradley speculated during the broadcast that Stevenson had hurt his left hand. He expanded on that post fights as some reporters saying that he'd heard that Stevenson had hurt his hand during a sparring session. Mm -hmm. And certainly Shakur seemed reluctant to throw it. Um, Stevenson seemed to be going out of his way to not make excuses afterward. Uh, he apologized to Floyd Mayweather and Andre Ward and Bud Crawford, all of whom were there to support him, um, admitted that it wasn't a good performance. He said only in passing that he hadn't felt well. And here's the thing. We've seen enough of Shakur to know that this was not even remotely a typical performance. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of have to assume that maybe there was something up with him there. What I'm guessing happened is that Stevenson came in maybe not feeling up to par, but he was prepared for De Los Santos to come at him, which is what we would expect De Los Santos to do, because that's how De Los Santos fights, and was basically prepared to counter him to death and use his aggression against him. And when De Los Santos didn't do that, he figured, well, this is working anyway. I'll just stick to hitting him with the jab. If he comes in close, I'll counter him. If he doesn't, I'll just jab him to death, and then we'll go home. Um, I thought watching it 
that he cruised to victory by a wider margin than the scorecards had it, but I did stop scoring quite early on, and I may have fallen asleep a couple of times. <laughs> and if Steve Weisfeld had it 116-112, it was 116-112. <laughs> yeah. um, but for all of De Los Santos' complaining that he was the one trying to make the fight, look, he threw more, sure, but he only threw 316 punches, which isn't necessarily the output of someone, who, especially a lightweight, who knows he's the underdog and has to put on a show to get the win. He never truly committed to his offense, De Los Santos. He's an offensive fighter, and he just never went for it. Maybe that shows that even below par, Shakur's counters were effective enough that De Los Santos was reluctant to engage. But this was a huge opportunity missed by De Los Santos, especially if, indeed, Stevenson either had a damaged hand or wasn't feeling well or just wasn't up to snuff. He had a below par Shakur Stevenson in front of him. And he didn't even bring his A or even B game to it. He didn't fight like Edwin De Los Santos. An awful lot of this is on De Los Santos. And I think it damages him hmm. more than Stevenson. Why? Because De Los Santos has made his bones as an aggressive fighter. And when he was given his big chance, he didn't show up. Thanks very much, Edwin. Get to the back of the line. <laughs> um, we know what Stevenson can do. We've seen him do it repeatedly. He may not always be the most exciting of fighters. We've talked about that. But I, although ironically, he's actually been sitting down on his punches a bit more lately. But we know he brings it. Mm. We know he's got flashes of skill. We know he's, he can be entertaining. He isn't one to like work off the back foot and just jab his way to a points win. Um, for any first-time viewers, people who hadn't seen Shakur before, sure, it was a turnoff. Um, for anyone in the crowd who'd come for the Formula One and decided to take in a fight, yeah, big disappointment. Total waste of money. Um, fortunately for Shakur, presumably due to the absurd prices of hotels in Vegas for Grand Prix weekend, there was hardly anybody in the arena, as you mentioned. <laughs> right. And I don't know how many watched on TV. Probably very few made it to the end. But serious boxing fans know how good he is. And will recognize that this was an off night. Everyone has them. Literally everyone. Floyd, Dre, Bud, Usyk, Tyson Fury. They've all had him. He just needs to put it behind him, dust himself off, and move on. If he has another stinker next time out, we have a narrative developing. But I'd be surprised if he does, though. Yeah. Uh, so I have relatively little to say about this um, because the fight started at 12.08 a.m. on a weeknight, um, which I, I get it. They wanted to avoid overlap with Thursday night football. Kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. But that is just absurd. It, it's bad enough to expect East Coast boxing fans to be watching after midnight on a Saturday. It's completely unrealistic to think they can on a Thursday. And yet I tried to, but uh, I started dozing off around the fourth or fifth round. And I was, you know, in that fog, half watching. I, I made it to the end of the fight. And so I knew what happened, but I didn't really grasp any of the details. I don't have any memory of it. I just know I got to the end and knew that Stevenson won a decision. And in most cases, when that happens, I'll rewatch the fight the next morning. No way in hell that I was going to rewatch this fight, not just because I had to work the next day. I just, you know, knowing how terrible the fight was, there was just no way I was going to rewatch it. So I have no particular analysis of their performances. I'll just say Shakur does have some damage to undo here, and he made it a lot tougher on himself in terms of big names being willing to fight him because there just isn't much money in a fight against him right now as you said it's one performance he can undo it people have short memories but he's got to bounce back and kind of erase this from people's minds yeah uh in contrast the co-main event was a lively affair emmanuel navarrete dropping robson conceição twice in a 130 pound title bout 
having to settle for a majority draw. The scores were 114-112 and 113-113 twice. Uh, Conceição outlanded Navarrete 213 punches to 116. Not for the knockdowns, would have scored a majority decision win. Eric, you did make it through this one, I think. Um, did you also score it? And was the draw a fair result? I sort of watched it, Kieran. Um <laughs> Even the co-main here didn't start till just about 11 p.m. on a weeknight. And uh, when it started, thought I was feeling okay. I enjoyed the first two rounds. Then the narcolepsy suddenly kicked in. And I missed like a round and a half only to be startled awake by Joe Tessitore screaming in round four when the first knockdown was scored. That man is an effective alarm clock, especially if the A side starts getting some business done. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I was fine after that. I was awake the whole rest of the fight. I was thoroughly entertained, but I wasn't scoring any of the rounds carefully because I'd already missed a couple of them. So I was really just watching as a fan. So, you know, not scoring it round by round. Did the draw seem fair? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, it did blow up a sweet Navarrete by decision, Stevenson by decision parlay that, uh, had going. I, I spent this most of this fight just rooting for Navarrete not to get the knockout, rooting for Conceso to get through it. Uh, that was uh, seemingly going to be the likely thing that would bust up my parlay was him stopping Conceso. Uh, but when that didn't happen, instead they got me with the draw. Um, but but it but it seemed fair, you know. Surveying the opinions on social media, Mark Kriegel scoring, it was definitely a close fight. Navarrete was doing more damage, but. Conceição won, you know, five, six, seven rounds. And so if you got to seven rounds for him, you got to a draw. Navarrete did not look sharp here. He was effective at times, but but not sharp. It wasn't his best performance. But also, man, you, you got to give a ton of credit to Conceição for how insanely game he was. He was so tough and not just survival tough, but also fighting back, rallying when hurt a bit. Uh, and especially the 12th round, I mean... The way he stumbled back to his corner after round 11, I thought there was a good chance the ref or his corner might even stop the fight. Instead, he comes out and wins the 12th on all three scorecards to earn a draw and trash my parlay. Uh, extraordinary effort. And uh, of course, Stevenson versus Navarrete is now as ice cold as it could possibly be. That's what they were intending to build toward. But I don't think that's happening next. So I'd love to see a navarrete Conceição rematch instead. Um you know, give Conceição a little break, good five or six month break between fights because he did take a lot of punishment on Thursday night. But but this was tremendously entertaining and it ended in a draw. I say do it again. Yeah, that is that is always the risk, hey? When you let things marinate or you try to build up to fights, you just uh, never know what might go wrong. I'm sure top rank felt pretty comfortable that they'd have everything nicely set up for a Stevenson never ready clash. <laughs> but uh, there you go. Uh, yeah. But like you said, people's memories are short. Yeah, I think, is this the same weight class in which uh, the famous marination between Juan Manuel Lopez, or maybe that was a weight class down. Yeah. Yeah, All right. So Navarrete's weight class, whereas uh, this would have been a 135. But uh, yeah, if, if, if you can get the guys to agree to fight each other. Do it. Do it when you have the opportunity. I don't know that the, that the opportunity was fully presenting itself here, but uh, there's always that risk. Yeah. The other thing that occurs to me as we discuss this is when and if we end up podcasting for somebody else in 2024, mm-hmm. I think we should have them move us to Hawaii so that we're in <laughs> the perfect time zone for all of this nonsense. We could be watching fights and be done in time for dinner. 
now now I'm like, I have wonderful visions dancing in my head of what time it is in Hawaii when fights in England happen. I mean, what? So oh my gosh, I mean, yeah, it's lunchtime, be, practically. Yeah, ooh, that's the dream. Fight, <laughs> watching fights as I eat lunch, that is, that is the dream. Sure, yeah, okay. whoever, future employer, if you're listening, relocation to Hawaii, we're, we're game. The Aloha Boxing Podcast hmm. with Mulvaney and Raskin. How about that? I like it. Yes. Or Raskin and Mulvaney. You'd like that better right now. <laughs> I, if they're flying me to Hawaii, they can call whatever they want. <laughs> call me whatever they want. Um, um, not much to report in the news segment this week. No obvious real main event. So we'll just do two quick chunks. Uh, there's one other big fight coming up next weekend. Uh, Chantal Cameron defends her undisputed junior welterweight championship against Katie Taylor. In a rematch of about the Cameron won by decision earlier this year, uh, Ashaki Foster, whom you mentioned earlier, moderately well-known as a super featherweight titleist, but more widely recognized as a former guest on Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, mm-hmm. has signed with top rank. And Mauricio Suleiman of the WBC has been saying Mauricio Suleiman of the WBC type things at his organization's convention in Uzbekistan. First of all, the beltmakers have suspended cooperation with BoxRec for listing Bridgerweight title fights as heavyweight fights because you know they're heavyweight fights and secondly in response to ring magazine not sanctioning the sunny edwards bam rodriguez bout for its belt suleiman unironically said ring magazine is a magazine very good Mauricio. i don't know why <laughs> media and champions and promoters give any credit to a ring magazine belt which only threatens the credibility of the sport oh my god pause <laughs> uh, some wonderfully self-aware comments there. Eric, anything you'd like to comment on, he asks, while stepping away and taking over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the jokes write themselves. Uh, when when anyone from an alphabet group talks about the credibility of the sport, he may as well be a serial liar calling everything that doesn't align with his lies fake news. Uh, you know, just as, as a hypothetical analogy. Um, here's the thing. Uh, and I say this as someone who hasn't been affiliated with Ring Magazine for more than a decade, as someone who hasn't agreed with every ranking decision or title decision they've made. Their titles are infinitely more credible than any alphabet groups. Their list of champions is infinitely closer to telling you who the top fighter is in each division than the WBC's list. They do not charge sanctioning fees. Their belts do not exist for the sole purpose of making money for the people handing those belts out. I have no idea why Suleiman even cares about Edwards Rodriguez. His trinket is not involved. Here's what I do know about that. The ring has Edwards ranked number one at flyweight and Bam number four. Uh, TBRB, a totally independent body, has them ranked in the exact same positions, one and four. So that tells you these are pretty darn accurate, reasonable rankings. And the ring has rules. A vacancy is filled when one fights two and sometimes when one fights three. Those are their rules. I think I get why Suleiman is so offended by this, because he sees someone following their own rules rather than just <laughs> making shit up on the fly or catering to the highest bidder, uh, and, and he can't process it. Uh, and also, fine, don't cooperate with BoxRec. The sport will just have to find a way to survive without the <laughs> WBC's cooperation with BoxRec. Listen, I- I've spoken to Mauricio Suleiman once at a phone interview. It was perfectly pleasant. He's a perfectly nice guy. This is nothing personal against him. But as a business, he and all the other alphabet groups are a joke, and he's just never going to win a credibility contest against the ring, against Boxwick, or against anyone, frankly. Uh, 
Wait, that got me fired up. I, I don't have much breath left for the other items. Uh, I'll just say, uh, good for Oshaki. I'm, I'm confident that signing with Tom Prank will be will be good for his career. And uh, Cameron Taylor too was a good fight the first time. It was a close fight the first time. I'm not sure things get any easier for the 37 year old Taylor the second time around. We may have seen the best of her already, but she's all fighter. We've known that uh, she wants to avenge her loss, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to the fight. Some good pre-pay-per-view entertainment on Saturday. Uh, the other big news of the week was the back-to-back press conferences to confirm two big cards in Saudi Arabia. Uh, first, the December 23rd card, which, as we reported last week, uh, and I'll again name our sources on that. It was uh, Dan Raphael or ESPN's Dan Raphael, if you prefer, uh, for the record. Uh, that card will feature Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder in separate bouts. And second, the Tyson Fury, Alexander Usyk heavyweight unification, which had been scheduled for that December 23rd date, but uh, there was a presser to announce that it has been rescheduled for February 17th. Uh, Kieran, any information and or opinions to share on either or both of those or any old news that everyone already knows that you'd like to break right now and credit to anonymous sources? <laughs> it's right. Um, I have to confess, subjectively, that December 23rd card is strong. Um, yeah. Anthony Joshua against Otto Berlin is a fight that AJ could very well lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wilder versus Joseph Parker is a very solid co-main. Uh, we also have a Dimitri Bivol sighting. As he takes on Arthur. Daniel Dubois returns against Jarrell Miller. Jai Opataya defends his cruiserweight belt against Ellis Zorro. Frank Sanchez takes on Junior Farr. There's an outing for Philip Hurgovic as well. That's unquestionably a strong card. It isn't fantastic. Uh, Arthur could barely walk at the press conference, so mm-hmm. uh, I have no idea what's going on there or whether he's likely to put up any kind of opposition to Bivol. I, I doubt it, and it's disappointing, I think, that a year after his career best performance, poor Dimitri Bivol hasn't had an opportunity for anything better than this, but uh, there we go. And Jarrell Miller getting such a big opportunity on a big stage is depressing. Uh, but otherwise, it's a good solid card. And I'll be honest with you, I would want to watch it. Um, as for the February 17th event, I've been looking forward to this matchup for so long. And yet Fury's antics have me feeling bored about it already. Mm. Um not just because of his poor showing against Ngannou, but because he's just become predictable and dull. He brought out yeah. the same old lines at the presser. Usyk is, quote, ugly and a sausage. Um, he tried to intimidate Usyk physically. Yawn. Look, Fury remains the favorite against Usyk for all the reasons we've outlined before. But I'm going to shed any cloak of objectivity here because as we keep joking with each other at this point, what are they going to do? Fire me? <laughs> um, I'm going to say right now, I sure hope Usyk does a number on him. Not mm. just because he's a much more interesting, unlikable person, but because I think it would do wonders for the heavyweight division and the sport. But the worst part of all of this, I just got through two paragraphs of notes and didn't mention Saudi sports washing once <laughs> until making the conscious decision to do so. It's working. Yeah. It's definitely working. <sighs> yeah. Um, I, you're absolutely right, though, about the Tyson Fury's antics and trash talk. He is just going through the motions. It's it's just like reflexive lines at this point. There's there's mm-hmm. it feels like his heart is not in it. I, as an observer, mm-hmm. am not interested anymore sausage is like was one of those things when he first did it it was like oh that's funny that's cool <laughs> the the, yeah. the 20th time that he's calling someone a you can just tell he's just like reading an old script that he needs to update yeah. and, and doesn't feel like updating it yet it's just 
there's some there's something missing there. Yep. All right, let's uh, bring this mofo home with the top five list. And uh, I rather like the assignment you gave me, Kieran. It, it was creative. It was an idea that hadn't occurred to me at all. It proved interesting and challenging. You asked me to rank the top five wins scored by any of the five main Xboxer color commentators on Showtime over the years. Those Xboxers being Bobby Chez, Antonio Tarver, Pauli Malinaji, Raul Marquez, and Abner Morris. All five of them were very good boxers. All five wore title belts. All five had noteworthy in-ring careers, but none of them are Hall of Famers. And uh, that made this assignment challenging because, well, there's an obvious choice for number one, but otherwise it's lots of good and very good wins between them, not much in the way of great wins. So, so I basically have a clear cut number one, and then I had 12 fights that I think you could legit consider for anywhere else in the top five. Um, I don't want to say my final list was arbitrary. It's not, but there just isn't a lot separating these. And it's a reminder that sometimes the absolute greatest fighters don't make the best commentators. Uh, the, the right, very good Valid. fighter, you know, the, yeah. if, if, if that very good fighter is smart or well-spoken, has a good personality, et cetera, sometimes the good fighters are better at calling fights than the yeah. truly all-time great fighters. Um, also, I'll just note, I, I considered going out of my way to make sure to get one pipe fight per fighter on here and not leave anyone out, but it didn't quite let happen. One fighter is left out, unfortunately. Um, but okay, enough preamble, onto the list. At number five, I have certainly the best win of the cruiserweight slash heavyweight portion of Bobby Chez's career, probably the best win of his career, period. March 8th, 1991, his decision win over Robert Daniels to claim a cruiserweight belt. Daniels was a good, tough fighter. And Bobby tells a great story about this fight, how at about five foot 10, Bobby was used to being the shorter guy most of the time and fighting inside and doing some slugging. But Daniels was only five foot eight. And he didn't really realize going in just how short Daniels was. So a couple of rounds in, Bobby realized he had to totally change his game plan and get on his toes and use the ring and box this guy. So he did, but he was moving so much that his feet started bleeding through his shoes and he was in so much pain that he wanted to quit, but he persevered and, and, and won the fight wow. and the belt. Um, you could make a case for Chez's KO seven of the unbeaten Andrew Maynard the previous year. You can make a case mm -hmm. for that being his best win, or maybe go back to when he claimed a light heavyweight title in 86 against the Serbian Kassar. But uh, I lean toward Chez over Daniels, the lone fight on my list from before I was covering boxing. Um, I'm sliding that in at number five. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you sort of asked for the clarification about best performances versus best wins. Because one mm -hmm. of the things I found, I didn't come up with my own list, but I did go through all their box recs and, and remind myself, some of their best performances of quite a few of the folks on this list came in losses, yeah. actually. It might have been easier to come up with best performances and, and only have one win out of a lot of them. Um, but yeah, I think this is one of those those wins where you almost have to remember how how some of these guys were considered at the time right mm -hmm. you look at robert daniel's career record at the end and i can't remember something he ended up with like 10 or 11 or 12 right. losses or something right but partly that's because he was a 5'8 guy who went up to heavyweight for god's sake right. um 
But at the time, yeah, he was he was actually considered a pretty dangerous guy. In fact, Bobby Chase fought a lot of pretty decent guys, mm-hmm. um, actually, uh, around that period. So, yeah, this was the one that probably was the most likely to uh, to be the one that I would have picked. There, there were a couple of others. He had like a KO one, I think, in his first defense against the fairly nondescript guy. What was his name? David Sears. That was it. It was mm. pretty nondescript, but was kind of up there and ranked and. And all of that. But yeah, when I think of Bobby Chase's career, I mostly think actually of the fights with Charles Williams that he mm. both lost. Right. Um, maybe the Donnie Lalonde win. I don't know. But yeah, this is probably the main one out, out, out of his career. I think that's probably the right pick. Okay. Um, at number four, let's get our boy Abner Maras on here. December 3rd, 2011, his rematch win over Joseph Agbeko. In their first fight, you'll recall, it was close. It was controversial. It was a majority decision, and Mara's got away with landing a lot of low blows. But in the rematch, less than four months later, Abner set the record straight. This was on the Cotto Margarito 2 undercard. He boxed, 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 used a lot of movement, just fought a totally different fight than the first time, and dominated 10 rounds to two on all three cards. Abner Mara's at his boxing best. That's my number four. Let's be honest. In the first fight, he beat the snot out of Agbeko's bollocks. Let's be honest. I mean, <laughs> right. I remember that all these years later. That I don't know what was. We should ask him about that sometime. Actually, mm. that that yeah, he was he was pounding that, but Jesus out of Agbeko uh, below the, <laughs> below the belt, um, and and got away with that. that. Might have been the first one of the first times I actually even saw Abner fight. I think mm. actually, I'm not sure that I saw his win against Lake Darchinian before that, but yeah, uh, this was. A good win, and one that established Abner really, really as a pretty darn good contender slash titleist, uh, who was engaged in a lot of good fights and often close fights, even even in his losses. Um, and this was the one that, that really started that. Abner was the one guy who I thought might sneak on here a couple of times because he, he was. I think he, he had a pretty good run of facing really good uh, competition. And maybe he will sneak onto your list a couple of times. I guess we'll see. But yeah, good call here with Abner. Hmm. Funny you should say that, Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> it's Abner again at number three. Uh, just two fights later, um, he had a far more exciting fight. He didn't box, box, box in this one. He yeah. and Anselmo Moreno engaged in an all-action fight at Staples Center in Los Angeles on November 10th, 2012. Mars dropped Moreno in the fifth for the first knockdown of Moreno's career. It was a highly entertaining 12-round fight, uh, but uh, Abner won a clear-cut unanimous decision to snap a 10-year winning streak for Moreno. I think narrowly over the Agbeko rematch, this is Abner's signature victory. Yeah, and Moreno was really the... um. He was the hipster's favorite at this right, point, wasn't right. he? It, maybe a little bit of the tarnish had come off him. He'd had that first loss, I think, but uh, at, but he was certainly showing why he was he was pretty highly regarded at, at the time. Yeah, this was uh, an entertaining fight, and you know what's interesting now? So we've got two. I, I think I know who's not making the list, and you can tell him because I'm not going to. <laughs> Well, you're about to find out because you know what number one is. So this yeah. this will determine who's not making the list. Let's get some El Diamante in here at number two. Is that, ah, is that oh, okay? I was surprised. Diamante okay. isn't going to be on the list. Ah, excellent. I'm okay. fine with this. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Okay. I thought you might be, um, but I wasn't sure if you meant you could tell him uh, to the other person in in a sort of a different tone. But okay. Uh, so 
what the fight that I'm putting in here, it's not going to be prime young El Diamante stopping Anthony Stevens or Romales Ellis, two fights that I did consider. No, it's it's 36-year-old El Diamante, Raul Marquez, in what would prove to be his second-to-last fight, June 21st, 2008, handing 26-0 Giovanni Lorenzo, who at the time was perceived as a future champ for main events, his first loss. Now, Raul hadn't scored a major win in years. He was pretty much dismissed as a contender after Jermaine Taylor stopped him in 2004. After that, he won five straight against mediocre opposition, Then he fought Bronco McCart to a 10-round draw. And so he was just supposed to be a name on Lorenzo's record. But Raul pulled out one last great performance, an inspiring old man win. He eked it out 114-113 on all three cards. I think the second best win by any of these Showtime analysts. You know, that's a great call. And I actually hadn't thought about it. I did have Romales Ellis Mm -hmm. as the fight that I thought would have have got onto my, my top five list. Uh, I didn't even think about that, this one. Uh, to be honest, I, yeah, I just didn't even occur to me. And I think it's a really excellent choice. And uh, I can't wait to tell him how I picked that to go on the list. So that's <laughs> There great. you go. Right. Thanks, yes. Raul. <laughs> you're, you're composing a text to him right now so that you can beat me to it. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, no, but honestly, it's kind of an easy fight to forget because Lorenzo did, went on to a sort of nothing career. He was highly touted at the time. Once he lost to Raul, the losses started piling up and he never did become a champion or anything close to it. So wow. you sort of forget how well regarded he was or what a huge favorite he was and what a huge upset this was. Wow. Yeah. Didn't even think about that one. Well done. All right. Well, number one should be beyond obvious. Uh, I have one question for you, Kieran. You got any excuses tonight? (laughs) Uh, It is Antonio Tarver, KO2, Roy Jones at Mandalay Bay on May 15th, 2004. One of the greatest wins any boxer has ever scored uh, in terms of emphatically defeating an all-time great when that all-time great was still perceived as great. Just just one of the all-time wins, period. And Tarver happened to be a Showtime commentator. And so it's the easy number one here. As shocking a finish to a fight as you'll ever yeah. see, given that Roy was considered superhuman at the time. Not much else I have to say. Um, you know, Tarver, his name has been on the Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, and most of the other guys here are not. And KO2 Roy Jones, I think, is the main reason he at least gets his name on that ballot. Yeah, absolutely. I'm shocked by you reminding me that that was damn nearly 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I'm i like, wow, where seriously has the time gone? Honestly, yeah. uh, I was ringside for that. Okay. And it was quite unlike the atmosphere was, was quite unlike anything that, that I've experienced. Because first of all, I just assume and I think this was just like, the conscious part of my brain just telling me that this can have happened, right? Roy can't be down. He can't be in mm. trouble because that doesn't happen. Right. And so I think I just thought, oh, it must have just been a flash. Not- I couldn't quite see the punch, mm. I think, from the angle that Roy was at. And then he sort of got up and then tumbled forward face first. And then and uh, it, it took a fraction of a second for it to sink in. And the crowd reaction, it was, there was initially, as I recall it, silence at first as everybody else shared that disbelief followed by that particular type of roar you get when the crowd realizes that they've seen a remarkable upset right followed by you could see everyone whipping out their phones even this was 2004 where not everybody was where people used to watch things with their eyes instead of through their phones <laughs> and, that. and um and everyone whipping out their phone to go oh my god roy jones just got knocked out right 
And the other thing I remember was there was somebody else on uh, the ringside on fight on media row who just took it upon themselves to try to turn the spotlight onto them, stood up immediately and goes, I knew it. I've been saying it for years. Bob Foster, Archie Moore, Michael Spinks, Ugh. any of these light heavyweights, they all beat him and no one gave a shit. And <laughs> I just still remember, it's still indelibly associated with that fight with me, with me looking up at, at him going, Jesus Christ, do you ever give it a rest? Right. Um, but uh, yeah, an extraordinary event to be at. And I'd only been covering boxing a very short period of time. Mm. Uh, my very first ring the credential fight had been the Delahoy and Mosley rematch about six months earlier. So right. uh, to be there ringside and see this, uh, yeah, it was uh, no wonder I'm still doing it 20 years later. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 well, I, even though I said the date, I hadn't been thinking about the fact that it is indeed like 19 and a half years. And uh, well, as if we needed more reminders of how long we've been doing this and how old we are, Kieran. <laughs> exactly. I think the inability to watch the sport that we are paid to watch past 11 p.m. is a pretty good <laughs> reminder of how old and washed we are. But yes, you're right. Come on, Hawaii. Let's go. Hawaii. Lunchtime fights. Yes. All right. Um, so the, the, just quickly, the others I considered, my honorable mentions. Um, uh, I already mentioned uh, Bobby Chez and Andrew Maynard. I mentioned Raul against Stevens and Ellis. Uh, I also thought about Mara's KO9, Daniel Ponce de Leon. Uh, I gave mm -hmm. I gave strong consideration to Tarver's revenge wins over both Glenn Johnson in their second fight and Eric Harding in their rematch. And I got to mention Paulie. He didn't quite make the list in part because he really fits what you were talking about, about some of their best performances, not necessarily yeah. being wins. When I think of Paulie's best fights, it's the gutsy loss to Cotto. Yep. And maybe the controversial decision loss to Juan Diaz, but uh, but you know his best wins are worth a mention. The the rematch over Diaz, uh, yep. and um, his first title win over Lovemore Endo, uh, brilliant boxing from Pauly that night. And uh, and I just I can't get the image out of my head of of Pauly down on the canvas celebrating uh, after it ended, and uh, Lou DiBella like jumping on top, basically like <laughs> doing a full body flying Jimmy Superfly snooker splash onto Paulie's back uh, in celebration as well. Uh, so if, if I, yeah, that those were certainly in consideration to, to squeak onto the list. I think I would have gone with the, the love more endo win. So uh, Paulie, if you're listening, that's my, uh, that's my five B. Yeah. The one that I might have, have used of Paulie's was that rematch win over Diaz. That mm -hmm. was the one. And otherwise looking at my list, I think we've touched on them all actually uh, that I had on my list. And yeah, like I said, wasn't thinking about that win by Raul, which I thought was a, a, a really nice pick there. Well, uh, we, I'm not planning to assign it to you, but it occurs to me uh, sitting here that uh, if I was ever going to assign you uh, greatest wins by HBO color analysts, it would be a very different looking <laughs> list. You got George Foreman, Roy Jones, Lennox Lewis, Andre Ward, Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, yeah, they um, H HBO liked to go with the, the the biggest name they could find. Showtime uh, has uh, carved out a nice niche. Uh, just uh, you know, hiring good commentators. And in, uh, as far as as far as we know uh, from talking to these guys over the years, uh, good good guys to talk to. Yeah, and and to sort of go to your point, I think Andre and Roy were were good. Were very good analysts. Lennox and then there was Lennox and George and Ray. <laughs> I think that George had certain qualities that I enjoyed at times. Um, mm. I don't have the same uh, 
the same equivocation Lennox when it comes to Lennox. <laughs> Lennox, Lennox is a, is a heck of a guy. guy and a heck of a fighter. Wonderful person. Wonderful fighter. And uh, and we'll leave it at that. I yes. Think. Um, <laughs> that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, remember, Benavides versus Andrade slash Andrade. The pay-per-view begins at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific this coming Saturday. And we will be back next Monday to recap the whole card. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Be safe. Be calm.